1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we're at. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 12. The title of this message is The Snare of Self-Confidence. This is part two of a message we began last week, and we're looking at verses 6 through 12 specifically this morning, but I'll begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, which says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So in our section here, we've been going through really this section, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And in chapters 8 and 9, we have Paul introducing us to the consideration of a weaker brother and a stronger brother. Who is the weaker brother that Paul is talking about in this context? Who is the weaker brother? Anyone have an idea? Yes. No, the weaker brother is not the one who thinks he's strong. The weaker brother is the one who cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols because it brings up too much in his his, uh, mind of perhaps past idol worship that he had been involved in. So the weaker brother is somebody who looks at a spiritual freedom that we have in Christ, and even though the stronger brother, the stronger brother is the one who says, oh yeah, we have freedom to do this. I can eat meat sacrificed to an idol because an idol is just nothing. It's a stone or uh, a piece of metal. It's not really a god. There is only one god, and therefore, if somebody says, would you eat this meat sacrificed to an idol? I'd say, sure, because it was sacrificed to nothing, and therefore, we have freedom to eat it. The weaker brother possibly grew up in a pagan home, worshipped those idols, was involved in uh, uh, the, the immoral worship, often involving temple prostitutes in Corinth. And any time, if you were to have them over and say, well, this meat was sacrificed to, you know, Aphrodite or somebody, uh, uh, some, some goddess, and he would say, oh, I can't eat this because it just conjures up too much of my past. So the weaker brother, though he may have freedom, his conscience would be violated, and therefore it would be sin for him to violate his conscience even though he had freedom. The stronger brother is the one who might be flaunting his freedom a little bit too much and saying, 
yeah, I'll go ahead and even eat in a temple. I mean, it's really nothing. It's not a problem. And some of them were eating inside of pagan temples, according to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 10. And in chapters 8 and 9, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to lay aside their freedoms for the sake of the weaker brothers who might stumble. We see this clearly in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9, where it says, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And now in chapter 10, Paul continues on with the idea of laying aside your freedoms. But the reason he's been giving in chapters 8 and 9 is because you should lay aside certain freedoms because it might cause others to stumble. In chapter 10, he picks up the same theme, but he gives you another reason why you should lay aside certain freedoms, and that is because it may cause you to stumble. It may cause you to fall. And we come to a culmination of that idea in verse 12 of chapter 10, be careful lest you stumble, lest you fall. Um, And so we look at spiritual freedoms. We've been talking about freedoms. uh, I've told this story in classes before uh, at the seminary when I talk about the freedom that you have as far as the time limit uh, for getting your assignment in. I tell the story of of an ancient king who was looking for a new chariot driver And so he interviews the top three chariot drivers in the land, and they stand before him, and he says to the chariot drivers, the first one, he says, if we were in my chariot and we were going around that bend on the road up there on that cliff, and we were going at full speed, how close to the edge of the cliff could you come if I hired you to be my chariot driver? And the first guy says, at full speed, I could come around that corner and come within one yard of the edge of the cliff. So the second guy, he asked the same question. He says, so, King, you know, if I were driving, I could come within one foot of the edge of the cliff. So he asked the third driver the same question, and the, the third driver says, King, if you were in the chariot with me, I would stay as far away from the edge of the cliff as I possibly could. So who do you think he hired? Right? And, and uh, I use that as an example to talk about there's get your homework done early, there's more freedom afterwards, right? But I I think the deeper message or the the more poignant message for most of us is when it comes to spiritual freedom, we have a tendency to say, how close to the line can I get before I go over the line and it becomes sin? But Paul is saying here, the real freedom, the real freedom is how far away from the line can you stay so that you do not offend others, chapters 8 and 9, and so that you yourself do not fall, chapter 10. That's what he's getting at here. And in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 10, we look at three steps that lead Christians into the snare of self-confidence, the snare of self-confidence. It's a danger. It's a trap to be overly confident or to rely on yourself and say that you will not fall. The first step is... uh, when you forget what God has done. We saw that last week, verses 1 through 5. It's a snare that leads um, to falling. It's a snare of self-confidence when you forget what God has done. And verses 1 and 2 talk about a spiritual baptism. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then there's also a second area of blessing, and that's divine sustenance. He says, all ate the same spiritual food, which is manna. And verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, 
which followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's a difficult verse because um, we're, we're not left with a good option for interpreting it because we, we hear about a rock that follows them through the wilderness, and nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that the rock followed them. And we learn here that the rock is Christ, and that's great. And there, 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 there are Old Testament passages which refer to Christ as the rock, um, and so that is not new to us, but the fact that it followed them through the wilderness. And some have speculated that, the, that behind the two million people that were traveling through the wilderness was a long, uh, you know, rock, there was a, a big groove in the sand that the rock was making because this rock literally followed them. And in fact, there's a Jewish tradition that teaches exactly that. The chances of that being a literal interpretation of this verse, I would say, are slim. I wouldn't be so dogmatic to rule it out altogether. I think that um, it's certainly possible, and just because the Old Testament never recorded it, there are other things, many things that the Old Testament never recorded that happened in the wilderness. The New Testament refers to it. Some spiritualize this and say, well, it's speaking spiritually of Christ as the rock, so it's a spiritual rock that's following them. I, I find that hard to swallow because it also speaks of spiritual food, and the spiritual food was manna, which was a literal, real spiritual food. And plus, on at least two occasions, Moses struck a rock and water came forth from it. And so uh, my understanding of this, uh, and this is probably an oversimplification, but just just to give you an idea of, uh, I I think he's referring to the reoccurrence of water from Christ, the, the one who gives living water, or, or even physical water in the Old Testament. I think Christ was with them in the wilderness as a member of the Trinity. I think it's identified, attested to here. And I think that the following, I don't think that you would picture a literal rock just being drugged through the sand or on its own, just propelling itself. I don't think it's, the, in other words, the petrification of Christ. We know that the incarnation, carne means flesh, but some have referred to this as the petrification of Christ, where Christ turned into a rock and followed them through. I don't think we're looking at that in a literal sense. But I do think that um, Christ, we're told, was the rock here. The word for rock here is actually a a different word than you would think of a smaller rock. This is a Greek word meaning cliff, uh, large rock. And the way I understand this passage is, It followed them in the sense that they kept on running into it. They kept on having a need for water. They kept on running into uh, Christ as the source of that water. Um, I don't know if you've been to an amusement park before, and you see somebody maybe from church, and then you see them in the morning, and then like later you're in line for food, and they're behind you. And you turn around, and what do you say to them? Are you following us? And you know that they're not following them, but you're using it in that sense that you see them again and again and again throughout the day. And I think that's what we're looking at here with Christ uh, in the wilderness. We keep on running into him again and again and again, most notably as the rock which gives water to sustain them. In any event, the idea here is sustenance. And so there's a great blessing from God and Paul is reminding them they must not forget that blessing, that being sustained, that must not forget what God has done. And, and of course, there's this idea that, you know, we have so much more. They have a, a spiritual baptism through the Red Sea, but we have a baptism in Christ. They were baptized into Moses. We were baptized into Christ. We are identified with Christ. We are immersed into his body. 
they had spiritual food. We have spiritual food. We have communion in the church. We have this, this picture of, of not only unity, but sustenance that, that we survive off of the, the living word. So I think there's this idea that um, we have more, and so we mustn't forget what's happened in the past. And you would think, I mean, this would answer the question to anyone who says, well, if, if God appeared to me in a visible cloud and led me al- around every day, I wouldn't disobey him. But of course, we know that's not true because he appeared in a visible cloud to the children of Israel. They saw a visible manifestation of Yahweh every day, and they still were guilty of serious sin, which leads us really to the next section, which was verses 6 through 10. This is a second um, snare of self-confidence is when you misuse the freedom that God has given you, when you misuse the freedom. The first snare is when you forget what God has done. The second is when you misuse the freedom. Let's jump right into verse 6. Now, these things happened as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. This first clause here is a very curious one. Again, this is not an easy passage. When I'm going through this passage, I'm thinking, okay, now, what is, how do we look at this? Because um, everything I know about biblical interpretation, when I think about the Old Testament, um, I, think, I think that most preachers today are guilty of a man-centered interpretation of the Old Testament. In other words, you go hear their sermon on Jonah, and the message is, don't be a Jonah. And they've taken the whole message and made it you know, from very man-centered, rather than the theme of, of, of Jonah is that God is a God of compassion. And what we find with Old Testament narratives is Old Testament teaches us about who Yahweh is. And by that, those implications teach us then how we must live. And so if you go hear a sermon on Daniel, right, there's a 90% chance that if you someone says, hey, let's go hear this sermon on Daniel, you get there, you get the bulletin, the title is going to be what? Dare to be a Daniel. That's right. Stand up, right? And uh, that is a sub-theme of Daniel, but really we have God's preservation as the main theme. God is a God who preserves his people, even during times of exile. God is a God who keeps his promises. Those are the things we learn. You go hear a sermon on uh, Joseph, right? And they say, well, today's sermon is, uh, is against temptation. And the title, you know, the title is Drop Thy Cloak and Flee, you know? And that's what this is all about, right? Run out of there naked if you have to. I mean, you know. And uh, it's true that Joseph had, uh, it's a sub-theme. That's a, certainly a lesson that we can learn from there. But what is the theme of the Joseph narrative? God is sovereign. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, Genesis 50, 20. So, We're guilty of taking man-centered applications. What's interesting about this passage is it says that these things, what things? The Red Sea, manna, and then people being being disobedient. Notice in the passage in verses 1 through 5, the repetition of the word all. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. Verse 5, nevertheless with most. How many were most? All but two, right? Joshua and Caleb, the only two who made it into the promised land. Everyone else perished in the wilderness. So there's a real emphasis here. God was not pleased with them, even though they had all these things. And it's a warning to us. 
And it says in verse 6 that these things happened as examples for us. And now we look at that, and commentators tend to take two different roads here. Um, One is that the sole reason for these things was so that the church could learn from them. Seems like a pretty extreme road. Was there no other purpose? No other purpose than, than, than that the, you know, as, as an example for the church that we should avoid idolatry? Another road that t- people take is that they, they interpret, now these things happened as examples for us. Um, these things happened, and they happened to serve as a good example for us not to follow in the same steps. And the problem, part of the problem with this verse is that the word for example is the Greek word tupas. Tupas is where it can be translated as type. And so we have a large spectrum of interpreters on what it means to be a type. Um, And the word itself helps us understand what the word type means because the word type or tupas in the Greek means to strike a blow. In fact, if you're old enough to have used a real typewriter, it gets the word from that Greek root, tupos, because the little arm, when you pressed on the key, would go up and strike a blow against the paper. And you could actually feel that impression. Now, obviously, typewriters weren't around in the biblical times, so we're not interpreting it through the lens of a typewriter. But a more, uh, a, a more, another way of interpreting it or an example of it in Old Testament times would be it left a mark. If you take a rock and you throw it into the sand... And then you pick up that rock, the impression or the mark that it left in the sand is a reminder of what just happened. And so it marks, it strikes a blow, it leaves a mark. And so I think that helps us to really understand what he's saying in verse 6, which is sort of a middle ground between those two extreme ideas. I don't think that on the one hand, Paul is saying that the only reason that these things happened was for the church. I think that those things happened because they reveal God's character. God is a holy God. Again, he is a God who delivers, which is the theme of him, you know, rescuing Israel through the Red Sea. He is a deliverer. And and we we, we won't say that it just happens to be a good example for us to use. I think there I think a good translation of the word tupas is example, which is what the New American Standard uses. Other versions may have used something else. But this is an example that God is a deliverer, and we mustn't forget that. This is an example that God sustains his people, and we mustn't forget that. And so there's sort of a middle ground interpretation there. And I think that rather than getting carried away with spiritualizing or allegorizing or I think we're, we're just, Paul is just saying, these things, these stories that you heard growing up, they should have left an impression on you. They should have left a mark on you. They should have been something that impacted your life so that you learned some lessons about who God is. Namely, that God is someone who should not be taken lightly. When you desire or lust after things, the word here, In verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. That word crave is a common word in the New Testament. Paul uses it frequently. Epithumia is uh, one way to look at the root of this word. The root word is epithumia. The word thuma, thumia or thumas, uh, we get the word thermos from it, 
Thermos is something you store hot water in it, but the real meaning is bubbling up. And so you have this idea of a thermostat in a car regulates the pressure of the radiator. And if your thermostat goes, on, goes out in your car, you know it because it just explodes. And this word epithumia means a bubbling up inside, a strong passion that is likely to blow if it's not kept in check. And uh, it's a neutral word. It's not a word that's necessarily, like we use, the words, we use the word lust today, which is often used in a negative context, but it could be a strong desire. Uh, in a biblical context, it could be something positive. But here, it's clear, he says, God was not, it says in verse 6, so that we would not crave evil things. And by the way, it says evil things. We know that this was an evil lust. They were desiring the things that they had in Egypt. We desire worldly things. The Corinthians were struggling with desiring pagan, idolatrous uh, worship, desiring the things that are associated with that, part of that old, frenzied, immoral lifestyle. And so uh, we have this... um, Verse 6, just saying, these were examples. These should have left a mark on you so that you wouldn't have the same evil desires as they do. But in your heart, what do you desire? And verses, really 6 all the way through verse 9, we have these evil desires, um, actually down through verse 10. Verses 6 through 10, we have four evil desires, four major sins, four categorical sins that are, relate to what we struggle with today. And these are, I'll just give them to you, one is idolatry, one is sexual immorality, one is trying God or putting God to the test, and the fourth one is complaining. So let's take a look at these, verse 7. Verse 7 is idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So we know from the wandering in the wilderness that the Israelites were hardly out of the uh, had, had just barely crossed the Red Sea, Sinai, and uh, basically the story is they get to Mount Sinai, God had told them, I'm going to deliver you, and he says, but hey, if you want to be my people, I'm a holy God, and you're going to need to be holy like I'm holy. So Moses went up on Mount Sinai. During that time, Aaron led the people, and they made a golden calf, and they were guilty of idolatry. They were trying to worship Yahweh with the same image of a God that they might have had in Egypt. And so we read about this in Exodus 32, verses 1 through 28. Turn with me to Exodus 32. You can keep your finger there. We're going to go back and look at some of the the Old Testament passages that are behind these references in 1 Corinthians 10, so we have a clear picture of what's going on here. Pay special attention to verse 6 in Exodus chapter 32, because it's quoted here in our passage in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7 where it says the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 8 of Exodus 32. Exodus 32, 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in your ears, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
Then all the people tore off the gold rings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now Aaron saw this. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And it's the word Yahweh there, a feast to Yahweh. So they were guilty of worshiping not a different God, but they're worshiping an image representing the true God, and it was a, uh, a sin to do that. It was not right because God was revealing to Moses that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship a graven image. It says in verse 6, So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verses 9 through 24, we have this discourse between Moses and God, and Moses is pleading for the lives of the people of Israel, and God is threatening to take their lives. Moses says, we'll be spoken of, you'll be spoken of terribly by the Egyptians. They'll say, he just just delivered them to kill them, you know, for your glory, save them. Verse 25 of Exodus 32, it says, now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever, I just want to stop there because there is a parallel here because part of the, the problem in Corinth was Paul was concerned about what? What was his chief concern? What was he concerned that you might be disqualified from if you lived a life like pagans? Witnessing. Paul's focus was on witnessing, being a witness for Christ. It's why he gave up freedoms. So he wanted to see people come to faith in Christ. And when you live like the world, you're witness for Christ is destroyed. And, and here, Israel has become a derision for their enemies because they're just living like pagan nations. And therefore, um, it says in verse 26, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp, and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today for the Lord to the Lord, for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin, And now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now, but go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day 
when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. So we have a lot there, but we have this verse 6 that's quoted. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. The eating and drinking refers to the excessive feasting that would go on with sacrifices and pagan rituals. Most would look at this word. In fact, the word play is a euphemism for sexual relations. It means sexual play. It's the same word translated as caressing in Genesis 26, verse 8. It could merely refer to the type of jovial dancing that also uh, um, was associated, but seeing what comes on in verse 8, it seems that this is a, a pointing towards sexual immorality as well. And according to Exodus 32, 28, it was 3,000 Israelites. These are 3,000 instigators who would not stop worshiping the calf. And that's why they were destroyed. God was purifying his people, and he was uh, killing even those who were family members, telling them, if you're for me, kill anybody, no matter how close a friend they are, no matter how close a family member, destroy them because they are leading the people astray from where I would have them go. So the second major sin alluded to already is sexual immorality. We've seen idolatry. And really, idolatry, you know, uh, idolatry is worshiping anything in this world and prizing it in a way that competes with your affection for Christ. It could be something evil. It could be something neutral. It could be something good. You know, I always said last week that your family, your spouse, it's a good thing to love them. It's a good thing to cherish them. But if you love them more than you love Christ, you have moved them to a category to which they do not belong. They are competing with your love for Christ. And therefore, not that you shouldn't love your wife or love your children, but you shouldn't love them above your love for God. Uh, same thing with it could be something like money. Uh, which it's not money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is a root of all evil. And so um, we, when we look at uh, the love of money, uh, when you love worldly possessions, it could be anything that you prize above our Lord. It could be actual, real idols, which many people in this world today still have in their home and burn incense to and worship because of their heritage with a, a, a different religion. But whatever it is, the warning is clear. It disqualifies you. Idolatry disqualifies you to be an effective witness. Second sin that disqualified some of the Israelites is sexual immorality. Nor let us act immoral, immorally, verse 8 says in 1 Corinthians, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now, the incident to which Paul refers to is from Numbers chapter 25. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to try and move a little bit more briskly here to get down to verse 12. But the, the idea here is in, in Numbers chapter 25, they're in the wilderness, and the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, it says in chapter 25 of Numbers, verses 1 and 2, for they invited the people to sacrifice to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The same incident is referred to in Jude, verse 11, when it says they have run greedily in the air of Balaam, the prophet. We remember the story of Balaam and Balak 
If you get them confused, Balak ends in a K, it's the king, and Balaam is the spiritualist or magician, ends in an M. So you have Balaam is the magician, Balak is the king. The king asks Balaam to put a curse on the people of Israel. He goes up, God makes him bless them. Um, but it's later that even though God, Balaam knows that they're blessed, Balaam says, hey, we're not going to be able to curse them, but let's just introduce them to pagan sexual immorality. That'll infiltrate them and destroy them and do the same thing as if we were able to actually put a curse on them, which they were unable to do. Numbers 31, verse 16, look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Revelation 2.14, when, Paul, when John wrote to the church in Pergamum, he also referred to this. He said in Re- Revelation 2, verse 14, but I have few things against you because you are those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So this, is, this was Balaam's strategy to sow cords of division and, and break up the nation and the strength of Israel and that was sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. And in um, Numbers, it says that 24,000 were slain. In 1 Corinthians, it says that 23,000 fell. There are several possible solutions to the numbers there and why they don't line up. The easiest being that in 1 Corinthians, notice it says that 23,000 fell in one day from a plague. So it could have easily been, since Numbers doesn't refer to any time span, that a 1,000 after that fell to the same plague. It wasn't the same day. At any rate, there are other possibilities. I don't think we need to go into that. I just wanted to show that we've, we're looking here at different sins or different evil desires that cause people to stumble, and one of them is idolatry, and one of them is sexual immorality, verse 8. Verse 9, we have testing God. Verse 9 says, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Another fascinating story where we have from Numbers chapter 21. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read verses 4 through 9 of Numbers chapter 21. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And some people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or water, and we loathe this miserable food. It's a good attitude of the the Israelites that we see again and again, right? And just like any parent, you know, who your kids are complaining, how long is this journey going to take? And, you know, when are we going to get there? And why did you put us in this car? We're miserable. And, of course, you just do what the Lord would do. You pull over to the side of the road. You get some snakes. You throw them in the back of the car. You let them bite the kids. And they say, ah, that's terrible. And then you heal the kids, and then you throw the snakes out. And you say, you see, you didn't really have that much to complain about anyways, right? The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you, intercede with the Lord that he may reprove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a a bronze servant and set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, then he looked to the bronze servant and he lived." 
Now, the sin here was testing God. They had really put God to the test. They knew that God had delivered him, but they're basically saying, I'm going to do this anyways. I don't think God's really going to punish me for it. And lo and behold, the serpents come. It's also, we know, a type of the cross. This is that example or a picture of the cross because what redeemed them from the physical ailment of a snake bite was by faith they looked up to a bronze serpent that was a picture of them putting faith in God's word. God had said, if you do this, you will live. So physically, they were saved. That's why in John 3, verse 14, when Nicodemus came to our Lord at night and asked about being born again or how do you have eternal life, and and our Lord said, you must be born again. Before John 3.16, he said in John 3.14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, you are saved by faith. You look at the cross. You look at the redemption of God. You trust in God's word, and that saved the people of Israel physically from their ailment. It will save you spiritually from sin. So we have a picture of faith. We have a type or an example of seeing something, believing God's word, and being healed. And that's what what John was referring to. Here, Paul brings it up because they were misusing their freedom for personal gain. They were not thinking about God's provision and his deliverance. They were thinking about what can we get away with. And you know, we run into this so often today. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a lady who wanted a divorce from her husband. She said, there are no biblical grounds, but I just think whatever, however God wants to punish me, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways. And lest you think that that is a horrific story that you're not capable of doing, every one of us is capable of doing that. The whole lesson here is, if you don't think you can do that, look out. Don't put God to the test. This is the impact these stories should have had on you. Fifth major sin about which Paul warns. We've seen that he's warned about uh, all these other issues, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and now complaining. And just before we look at this, how many times in the past year and a half have you complained? Take heed. It says, verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Referring back to Numbers chapter 16, verse 32 through 35, we have the sons of Korah, and Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and fellow rebels who basically said, hey, we're all just as righteous as Moses. He doesn't need to be our leader. Any one of us can be the leader. And Numbers 16, 32, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods, So they ate, and and those with them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them and fled at their cry and said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering incense. Numbers 16, verse 41 says, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. So if you can picture this, you have people complaining to God and saying that Moses really isn't God's man. Any one of us could be God's man. And the ground opens them up with all of their families and swallows them, and the people turn and blame Moses for it. God was so incensed about those complaints that he immediately sent a plague 
that killed 14,700 people. The destroyer killed them. This is the same destroyer that passed over the homes of the Israelites when they were being delivered from Israel and killed the firstborn son. It's, it's this amazing story, right? Things were better in Egypt. Egypt, you mean, you mean that place where every family lost their firstborn son to the destroyer? Things were better? Really? The same destroyer who later, when David was ruling in 2 Samuel 24, killed 70,000 men because of David's census. The same destroyer who killed the entire Assyrian army in 2 Chronicles 32 because of Hezekiah's prayer. This is what MacArthur's commentary says on this passage. I, like, I, I read this. I really liked it. It said, Murmuring is dissatisfaction with God's sovereign will for our lives and the lives of others and is a sin that he does not take lightly even view of his grace. When God's people question or complain, they are challenging his wisdom, his grace, his goodness, his love, and his righteousness. Our need for contentment is not merely for our own well-being, which it is, but for God's glory and honor. Complaining dishonors our heavenly Father. Contentment glorifies him. So we've seen these two steps, forgetting what God has done and misusing the freedom that God has given. There's a third one that I just want to get to, verses 11 and 12. The third step is when we ignore what God has written. Again, in verse 11, he speaks about an example. He says, now these things have happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. The ultimate Step that leads to disqualification is when you say, yeah, I know all those stories happened in the Bible, but nothing like that's ever going to happen to me. This is for us, upon, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We are the generation. We are the people. This is the church age, which leads to a time where the church is raptured, a seven-year period of tribulation, and a new era, a new kingdom, the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. And on this age, the last age of what we would call world history, God has written about these events to put an impact on us. For the Corinthians, eating meat to idols that caused an idolatrous lifestyle, that led them to sexual immorality and testing God and complaining, you can hear of many of them saying, well, I have the freedom to do that. And Paul says, take heed lest you fall. Reminds us of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So a few weeks ago, we were talking about gray areas. What freedoms do we have? And things that were mentioned, things like, um, you know, Uh, the movies that you watch or the music that you listen to or relationships that you were in. Whatever it is that you have in your heart as an idol that competes with your affection for Jesus Christ, take heed lest you fall. When it comes to sexual immorality and you say, oh, I can watch this film. It doesn't really affect me. It's okay. Or I can look at this website I'll ignore this. I won't click on that link. 
or relationships that you're in, well, I can entertain this relationship. Let me tell you something. If you're in a relationship and the guy has told you that here's the line that we will not cross when it comes to sexual immorality, and he has crossed that line, get help. Get out of that relationship or get help. That is a huge red flag. Take heed lest you fall. If you think that you're okay in that relationship, take heed. Putting God to the test. When we talk about the freedom, this could be any freedom, but when we talk about the freedom of alcohol, and you talk to people and you say, well, where is the limit? Where is the edge? And somebody says, well, it's 0.08% because that's what it says to the Department of Motor Vehicles that I'm actually drunk. If that's your guideline, take heed. Uh, if, it's, if, it's, if you're saying that, well, uh, it's when I feel you're just mildly squiffy, you know, just a little bit tipsy, uh, take heed lest you fall. I would go this far and say this. If your heart's motive for drinking alcohol is to bring about a feeling that, that loosens you up, I would say that's a sinful heart motive. But I've got freedom to do it. Yes, you do. How far away from the edge can you be? That's Paul's whole point here. Take heed lest you fall. Complaining occurs whenever we have not learned to be content in all circumstances. That's the fourth example he uses. So the message is clear here. And if you've listened to this message, and in your heart of hearts, the primary thing you're thinking about is, this would be good for so-and-so. Take heed lest you fall. If you haven't been able to identify something in your own heart, these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think this doesn't apply to you, you think you're okay. This is a hard message for all of us. And Lord willing, next week we'll come back together and we'll look at a real sweet promise about temptation and a way of escape. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this morning from your word, for the example, for the, for the times where we do feel like we've been struck with a blow, that it reminds us of our need to pursue holiness and glorify you, not only because of the way it will affect those whom you love, those, those others in the church, but because it will affect us. So purify our hearts. May we pursue what glorifies your name. May we take heed and flee and stay far away from the edge of any cliff when it comes to the line of immorality. We commit this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.